why push, why take the risk? Why push further and harder? I have noticed with human performance, you are either playing offense or you are getting worse. I, I have almost never seen stable. I find that people do well when they think they are progressing, when they are pushing, when they are going, I am trying to get better. I am trying to get better. I am trying to improve, especially if you can see that incremental improvement. People do very well in those situations. As soon as people turn around and start playing defense, that is when I see people rapidly fall off. Welcome back team. Happy, uh, happy Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, I guess. Another week here with Drew and Alex and uh, the Mops and Mo's Fireside Chats. And Alex, I have a question for you. How old was the world's oldest dog? Uh, 25. Higher. Higher. 30. Mm -hmm. 30. But here's where it gets tricky. Apparently, Bobby, the dog who was 30 and is now dead, apparently they lied. He wasn't actually 30. Could not be proven. The Guinness World Record organization, I didn't know they do this, but like this dog died and they were like, wait, wait a second. I think you were lying. So Bobby did they rescind the record? Well, yeah. And they don't know they don't know who is the new record holder. Have, and, have you heard about the Guinness World Record about the tallest structure situation? The tallest matchstick structure situation? Sorry. No. What? So a guy, a guy was going for the tallest matchstick structure and the way he was building it, he built a really tall Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks. And it was an incredibly annoying process because what he had to do was like pull the sparking part off of every match and just <laughs> stack the sticks to make the, the structure. And because of the quantity of matchsticks he was going through, he realized it would be way faster to just call the match company and be like, hey, can you send me the sticks without the match heads? And so when Guinness came to evaluate the structure, they disqualified him because they determined that wasn't acceptable. And there was <laughs> massive public outrage. And eventually I mean, they decided to give him the record because it still is the same stick. He just didn't have to pull the match heads off. Uh, but it's just a stick. It's a raw material. And now we get into a, a deep rabbit hole of when does all life begin? These records are stupid. <laughs> They're all very bad. Well, it's a marketing. Have you, seen, have you seen the push-up record video? Yeah, it's a joke. Those are not push-ups. Looks like an army commercial. There's Sorry. there's some Sorry. stupid. Too close to home. Stupid. I mean, I work around the Air Force now, and Air Force push-ups are worse than army push-ups. Does Space Force do push? Can you do push-ups in zero gravity? Probably not. Um, you'd have to like hook your feet in somehow, and you'd have to be able to pull yourself back in because you nothing would pull you back. To, you have to do it on like a bar that you're holding on to. Well. Yeah, so Bobby, the dog, back to your was, story, was 31 years and 165 days, apparently. But we don't know. We don't know. They just, so they, they disputed it, it, and I guess they used microchip evidence that was wrong. He, I, I've never heard of this. I almost said brand. I've never heard of this species before. Raffiero, Raffiero hmm. do Al, Alentejo? Got nothing. Raffiero do Alentejo from Portugal. Here's a fun fact. The previous oldest dog ever... You don't have a kid, so you wouldn't. This wouldn't be as cool to you. But the previous oldest dog was from Australia, and that dog's name was Bluey. That's pretty good. I appreciate it. How old is Bluey? Bluey 
was 29 years and five months, but Bluey died in 1939. So there's don't tell been... all the kids who are hyped on Bluey that Bluey died. Well, I want uh, now I want to find out if Bluey the cartoon is named after Bluey the previous oldest dog. Well, you'll have to tell us in the next episode. Well, so this is a funny quote from Danny Chambers. Danny Chambers from the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, which is in the UK. His quote about Bobby, the fake old dog, he says that, quote, not a single one of his vet colleagues believed that the dog actually lived to 31. <laughs> there's a picture. Of this, there's a picture of this old dog next to the certificate. He's, <laughs> just, now he's dead. And they're like, hey, you aren't actually as old as you said you were. So... Anyway, um, I don't know how to transition this into what I was going to say. About. If you had a way to transition that one into the episode, I was, well, was going to say, speaking away. of old things, but like he's not old. No, and he's already getting offended now. I know. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, our strapping young guest on this episode, Lieutenant Colonel Justin Elliott, call sign Astro. Uh, actually, depending on when you're listening to this, possibly a colonel already. Uh, Astro went to Yale, where he was a D1 collegiate swimmer and a mechanical engineering small school. major. Probably, probably haven't heard of that one. Just yeah, he, small, uh, small he embraced door. the high performer life pretty early. Um, he graduated and commissioned in the Air Force in 2005 and went on to fly the F-15E in Afghanistan, including participating in the Battle of Kamdesh, which you may be familiar with from either Red Platoon or The Outpost. That's Cop Keating for those who follow Army history kind of stuff. Uh, he went on to get a master's degree in aerospace engineering and a master's degree in flight test engineering. He is a graduate of the United States Air Force's weapons school and test pilot school. He commanded the 59th Test and Evaluation Squadron, which includes all six fighter and attack jets in one squadron, and then most recently commanded the Thunderbirds, the demonstration crew. He they flew over the... Uh, I didn't realize they flew over the Super Bowl. They sure did. Yeah, um, so. And he he just wrapped up that command, so he was not in command of the Thunderbirds for that demonstration. He is now at the NATO Defense College in Rome. Some, some fun side facts he included for us. Um, he is the first person in history to complete all three of the Air Force's elite flying programs, so weapons school, test pilot school, and the Thunderbirds. No big deal. He pulled together fighter breathing knowledge from nine different communities into one unifying brief to explain fighter physiological performance across disparate communities. You will hear a lot about that in this episode. And then as a result of that, he is a founding member of COPE Fighter, which is characterizing and optimizing the physiological environment in fighters. He founded crowdsourced flight test, pulling together flight test data from fielded forces to avoid test environment stove pipes from different airframes and things like that. And probably the coolest one here, um, he was a finalist in the NASA Astronaut 2017 board. And while he was in the 2021 board, he withdrew from that process to accept command of the Thunderbirds. As you do, you know, casual when stuff when you're faced with we're all faced with choices like that. You know, should I be an astronaut or should I command a, an elite flying team? You know, I've been there. I get it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, everyday sure. kind of decisions for sure. Um, yeah, so we have we have a lot of cool people on this podcast that do a lot of cool things. Um, meanwhile, here's Alex and I just kind of bantering about. But I think, um, at least for me, maybe for you, this this was one of the coolest conversations we've had, I think. Maybe for me, I, I had just watched the movie The Right Stuff, which if you haven't seen that movie, you should. It's all about 
kind of the founding of NASA and human spaceflight, and it gets into a lot of the test pilot stuff. And so to then actually talk to a real life test pilot, like I was pumped, love talking to pilots. I think it's super cool. But this conversation was, I think, particularly interesting because here we have somebody who's not only incredibly intelligent, but is also actively looking for solutions to some problems that these guys and gals face when they're flying these high-speed aircraft. And quite frankly, as somebody who's only really ever worked with ground forces, I had never even conceptualized that these issues would be issues. And oh, not to mention, he commanded the Thunderbirds, which most people are probably familiar with the Blue Angels. The Thunderbirds is the same thing, but for the Air Force. And so each one of those conversations could probably be an episode in and of itself. And to be able to have both of them was just awesome. I also think there's a really cool conversation in here. As you heard kind of from the intro, there is a lot of focus here on breathing, breath control, breath work kind of stuff. It's a popular topic right now in a lot of different circles. Obviously, in the cockpit of a fighter pilot is an in extremis version of breath control. Good words. It's a lot of you guys have uh, have probably seen some of the headlines around particularly the F-35, but it was not only the F-35 having pilot breathing issues. Um, I first heard about it with the F-35, but Colonel Elliott definitely introduces us to earlier issues pre-F-35 with it and issues across airframes. And the takeaway there was it was not necessarily an airframe issue. It was not really an engineering issue. It is a human performance issue around breath control and breath work and regulating anxiety type of feelings in really extreme environments. And there's definitely applicability there. Whether you fly anything or not, breath control has its place in in kind of managing the stress of high intensity situations. And I think too, for for people who are kind of into the latest and greatest cutting edge sort of tactical humor performance conversations around, um, you know, where this, where this industry might be going in the next couple of years and and where we might start seeing different pockets of the military investing in this type of thing. I think the fighter pilot community is a fascinating one. And, and one of the, I guess, things I hadn't even really considered until we've started having more of these conversations with pilots is that it truly is first generation humans trying to manage and manipulate what are we on now like fifth generation sixth generation something like that something like that fifth generation machines and so we're kind of inevitably headed towards a point where as long as humans are manning these things they're going to have to deal with ever increasing stresses and ever increasing problem sets so like we said at the top super fascinating episode real shame that uh bobby lied on his birth certificate he wasn't as old as he said but uh Yeah, strap in and uh, enjoy the show. Define measures of performance, Alex. Measures of effectiveness. Oh, am I going first? Yeah. Oh, man, fine. Love that you recognize the term. It's it's certainly in joint doctrine, JP3O. People are already tuning out of the podcast because I'm referencing doctrinal publications. I got but, uh, I got a text this week from a guy talking smack about how often you, rec- you uh, refer to doctrine, by the way. But keep hey, going. man. It was my job. <laughs> I still, you know, whatever. It's fine. The The way we apply it to fitness, or at least the way I applied it to fitness at the beginning of this whole journey was I borrowed uh, a little audience interaction exercise that one of our previous guests, Mark Taysom, used to do. It's awesome. Um, his is a little bit funnier than mine, but the, the way you do it is like, you get in front of a group of people and you ask them, how do you know if a workout was good? And consistently, the answers are sore, tired, and sweaty. All right. Awesome. That's how we're measuring it. 
I'll give you the fastest, best workout of your life. Meet me in the sauna at 2 a.m. and I'll punch you in the face. Like sore, check. You got punched in the face. Tired, check. It's the middle of the night. Sweaty, you're in the sauna. Awesome. We've met all the criteria. Good to go. Clearly, that doesn't mean the workout was effective at anything in particular. And so that opens up a conversation about like, are we, do we even have a goal? Do we know what our goal is? Are we measuring progress towards that goal? What's the desired end state? And I think that's something that gets missed in the fitness conversation a lot. You don't normally see like doctrinal analytical concepts applied to fitness, but I think it's worth doing sometimes. Okay. That's incredibly analogous to flight test in the air force. And awesome. I, I have to elaborate. It's, so <clears throat> We measure aircraft through measures of performance, i.e. how closely do they meet their specifications, which were often set by requirements that were made a long time ago. You know, sometimes well before the enemy changed its way of thinking and well before the uh, scenarios we face today are, are in effect, right? When we first designed the aircraft, we set out these specifications of performance that it has to meet. And very different from that, we have measures of effectiveness, which is how well do these things perform their mission? in actual combat in a scenario that, um, you know, that you're going to see today. And so the reason flight tests in the air force is so difficult is because when you set your requirements for those performance specifications, I mean, I'm not kidding. It can be two decades before this thing sees its first flight. And, um, by the time you get your hands on it, you're measuring those performance goals. And sometimes it meets every single one of them, every single specifications that, you know, it meets perfectly but it's completely ineffective in the new threat environment that it's going to face when it goes out the door. So you can face these extremely difficult challenges where it's like, okay, the contractor did every single thing that we told them to do 20 years ago. They did it. And yet we still have to fail this thing because it's not going to be effective in combat. You can have it vice versa too. You can have something that pops up that's extremely effective for the mission we need it for, but doesn't meet any of its requirements. And that makes things difficult to, to settle out on the contracting side too. So not dissimilar effectiveness and, um, and performance are two very different things. Well, and as you're saying that, and, uh, we, we have had this conversation with, I would say the majority of our guests just kind of to get different perspectives. But I, I do think back to when I was working with the air force and same thing happens now with the army, but they view human performance and human beings through that same kind of call it a mechanical lens. I remember with the air force, it was like, Hey, whenever you brief senior leaders, understand that most of them are pilots and they think about things as far as checklists and red, yellow, greens and all that kind of thing. And, and it will benefit you to look at the human being the same way. And now with the army, you know, mm -hmm. substitute, you know, airplane for Humvee or tank. And it's, it's the same conversation. And I think there's not really a question wrapped into this, but I do find it interesting that so much of the way the military thinks about things is through hardware and they want human beings to be hardware and it doesn't account for the squishy stuff that we're starting to learn is actually probably more important than the ET tests and the red, yellow, greens and the checklists. I completely agree. In fact, I would say it's one of the greatest mysteries of human performance evaluation that's still out there in the Air Force. You know, we try so hard to come up with this Rubik's cube of qualities that makes for a great leader or a great pilot or a great test pilot, whatever the case may be. And we have some things that I think we allocate towards those like fitness performance, academic performance, GPA in high school, 
and then some more arbitrary things like leadership potential, um, hands and feet flying ability, for example. And it leads to this, this desire to have a checklist, right? Like a box checking checklist that will tell me who the best high schooler is coming out of high school right now in America. That's definitely going to be the best fighter pilot in the world. And it, I just don't think it exists. If it does exist, I can tell you the checkpoints are not has bachelor's degree, has master's degree, got 100 on fitness tests, et cetera. It is, there's a resolution in that cube mm -hmm. of facets that's got to be much, much higher than what we're looking at now. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. It's, it's, there's something that we are not accounting for, something in, as you say, the squishy stuff that uh, I don't know that we've cracked this code yet. And you, if it's not too much of a jump, we've had, uh, I would say the majority of the pilots we've had on have been from the A-10 community. And I think that's a, probably has something to do with having General Drally on first. But, you know, attack plane versus fighter aircraft, whatever you want to call it. I'm curious, in your experience flying the aircraft you have flown, what the, I guess, human element of that looks like versus an A-10. It's tough because I have flown basically everything else. <laughs> so to be able to say that I can tell you what it's like to fly an A-10 in combat, I, I can't. You know, that's a, that's an aspect I'm missing. I'll give it my best shot. I think the I think all all fighters and attack platforms face a situation where decision agility is everything. You, probably similar to what you face in a ground scenario. Um, when things get difficult, they get difficult because you are being asked to make decisions on far less than perfect information. This this thing that I call operational intelligence, right? I think you know, we've heard people talk about intelligence like IQ, and then now um, you know a much more popular, growing interest in EQ or emotional intelligence. I personally believe there's a third one called operational intelligence. Um, that uh, that is far less accounted for. I, I've never heard anyone use that term, by the way. I, I just made it up, but I think it's the um, I think it's the third piece of the triangle. I think it's what you see professional athletes do, and and I would kind of define it as making decisions with far less than perfect information. Maybe 20, 30, 40 percent of the information you wish you had to make a decision, and and yet you have to decide, and you have to decide now. The A10 pilots face that because of very dynamic. Ground scenarios where they're trying to sort friendlies from hostiles in an environment where somebody needs guns or bombs on target immediately. Fighter pilots face the exact same scenario in the sky where you have waves of targets coming at you. Sometimes they're stealth aircraft that are not picked up until uh, far closer than normal airplanes. Um, you know roughly what the enemy fighter force has done and what they are likely to do. You know roughly what your forces are supposed to have done. But when you're trying to manage up to 100 aircraft in a large force exercise, it's impossible to have 100% of the information. You'll never have it. You'll never have anything more than I would say about 40%. And yet you have to decide. And I think that's where that operational intelligence comes in, whether that be fighters or uh, slow movers in dynamic ground scenarios. Um, it's there and it's something I don't know how to find that in the general population to bring into the military until they've been in scenarios like that. The closest I can come up with is, is sports. So, I, 
Go ahead. I have I have a weird riff as you're talking about this, and this might be because I just started watching Masters of the Air last night, and obviously there's all kinds of cool cinematic. You know, we're in the sky, we're fighting. Does the does the speed at which fighter aircraft move now? Does that change what you're talking about with regards to the operational intelligence? And I'm kind of thinking of like the cognitive element where as aircraft get faster, I would imagine that the time within which you can engage the other, like the enemy shrinks because everybody's flying around so quickly. What does that do to the equation when we think of that operational intelligence element? Have we kind of outpaced the human's ability to take in everything that's happening in a given battle space? I had a friend say this better than anyone I've ever heard. Dr. Ryan Mays from 7-Eleven Human Performance Wing in the Air Force. Yeah, he said we've got first-generation humans flying fifth-generation <laughs> aircraft. Nice. And That's exactly that what I was thinking. exactly what it is, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we, are, we are exactly the same thing evolutionarily that we were when we were, you know, if we wanted to get to 14,000 feet, we had to slowly walk up the mountain one step at a time. Um, and our bodies adapted to that altitude change because it took us, you know, days to get mm -hmm. up to 14,000 feet. And so, you know, our, our bodies are meant to adapt that way, even from a physical perspective. Now I can zoom from zero to 14,000 feet in about a second and a half. You know, we have compensations in the cockpit on the physical side, but on the mental side, Gosh, there's so many places we go with this. Um, from just a speed perspective, I'll talk about that a little bit first. From just a like velocity perspective, a lot of our combat adapts for that with distance. So as the jets move faster, the missiles fly farther, the missiles fly faster as well. Therefore, the shot ranges are farther away mm -hmm. um, for both sides. And so the speed of the combat... It's probably not terribly dissimilar from what they were facing in World War II. It just all happened much closer. I think that what's changed is the absolutely overwhelming amount of information that's coming at you in those long-range fights. Because when you're talking about shooting and fighting over ranges that, let's just say fighter to fighter, fighter to bomber, we're talking about nearly 100 miles. When you start rolling in hypersonic weaponry and some of the surface air missile systems that are going Mach 6 right now, you're talking about pushing those shot ranges back to where you are threatened hundreds of miles away from mm -hmm. the target. And so what I have found the, the most difficult reality to deal with is my brain goes, that piece of land is hundreds of miles away. It is no threat to me. It shouldn't even be a concern to me. I've got nearer, hotter threats that are a problem, but yet there are things on that piece of land very far away that are already shooting, that are already locking, acquiring, and launching weapons. And if I don't react to those, then those are going to kill me. It's, it is fascinating how your concept of distance on what's too far away to matter uh, has to shift and adapt to the speed of combat right now. Mm -hmm. So despite being a, a normal human performance podcast, Drew is obsessed with airframes. I am going to try and keep this relatively on track to the topics we had sort of I could, I could the spiral on this stuff. We didn't even along. mention one. Fortunately, we haven't even no. talked about a, a, a platform. That's good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> See, I've gotten I've gotten better. Wait till I ask you what your favorite plane is. That'll be that's coming at the end. You're going to have that one so you can start brainstorming. Yeah, chew on that for a little bit. 
Um, so to bring us to one of the topics you brought up when we initially had a conversation and not something I think Drew or I had really thought about as a direction to go with this, but the, the physiology of breathing in the cockpits of these aircraft in the situations we're putting them in. I know in the space we're in breathing is like a hot topic in the fitness space, right? Everybody's excited about Wim Hof stuff or vagal tone or whatever you want to go down the rabbit hole on. But for you guys, it's a life or death conversation in the fighter aircraft community. So just to just to do some stage setting for people who haven't thought about this issue at all, can you dive into what you and the community have learned in the last decade or so about pilot breathing issues in flight? And I'll ask too, I've seen headlines specific to the F-35 on this issue. Is it an F-35 issue? Is it a hardware issue or is it a bigger issue than that? It's bigger. It's bigger. And I, I can't tell you how heartwarming it is to hear that the Army's hot on this right now too it is red flaming hot in the air force right now it is um 2018 was probably its peak of uh like right on the front pages of congress and the newspapers because it was affecting the f-35 i'll tell you that it was affecting our platforms long before that we just didn't have the background or knowledge to understand why and so i'm going to take you back to 2012 um so in 2012, that was actually the first time we made headline news with our breathing issues in the Air Force. It was F-22. Two pilots went on 60 minutes, basically said, hey, I can't breathe in this airplane. I'm quitting the Air Force. Um, I don't want to fly it anymore. Just blew people's mind. Got a lot of attention. And just like you're talking about with performance in general, of course, the road that everyone went down uh, as they tried to solve this problem was, well, I need a technical solution. I've got to figure out what that smoking gun was. Why, why is this, this, this one airplane has to be the problem. Why is it doing this and how do I fix it from a technical perspective? The F-22 is an extremely high performance aircraft. I think it's important to know that um, right up front from the human side, but everyone went down the technical road. 2014, um, I was in test pilot school and the project that my team and I tackled um, was to figure out what was going on with this F-22 investigation back from 2012, which was closed. And I put air quotes on that because it was closed, but there were a lot of people in the medical world that had questions and theories and some really interesting ones at that. And so we specifically went out to test this concept called the work of breathing, which put very simply means, you know, the amount of work that you are doing to breathe if it is taking more work out of your body than you are gaining from the oxygen carbon dioxide exchange in your lungs during that breath, well, then you're actually getting negative um, benefits from that breath. So this work of breathing concept was fascinating at the time uh, in 2014. We strapped on um, some, some gear to try to mirror what the F-22 pilots were dealing with. So there were two main issues. One was that the F-22, because it flew so high and so fast, uh, they wore an upper pressure garment. So almost like a, a sort of a pressure suit, but it was just over your chest and it was attached to your G-suit. It was a full body G-suit and it would squeeze really hard down on your abs and in your chest while you were pulling high Gs. F-22 could do up to 10 Gs. So it was, it was squeezing not just your lower limbs to keep that blood in your brain, but also squeezing your torso to keep that blood in your brain. And you got to understand that the theory behind that was sound. You know, the idea was we're going to squeeze everything to keep that blood up in your brain at that high G. 
The problem is, even if it was effective at extremely high Gs, what happens when you let off the G? You know, have you put yourself so far behind from a physical perspective that your work of breathing against that restriction is not enough to catch back up before you pull back on the stick again? So that was one problem they were dealing with. So we over-tightened all of our gear to try to match that. The second thing was the jet was built with a, a flow meter, if you will, like a plenum um, that regulated flow of oxygen to the mass. So this is about flow rate, not the quantity of oxygen that you're getting in that breath, but the flow rate of that oxygen. And the theory was that a human would never breathe more than about 183 liters per minute um, in any situation they could come up with, you know, high physical activity on the ground, et cetera. So they made the plenum, they made the flow rate about 200 liters per minute to be more than you would ever need. Well, come to find out in, in fighter maneuvering um, in a high-performance aircraft under G, pilots were demanding closer to, to 300, almost 400 liters per minute uh, of air from a system that was only able to give them 200. And so you can imagine that feeling of like sucking rubber, um, where it's not about the number of oxygen molecules coming in, it's about the flow rate, right? You are, you are pulling against this mask, trying to get air into your lungs that isn't there at that max demand. And you can imagine that environment is going to create a lot of work for your body. So when we went out and looked at this, um, we had a restrictive hose to match what the F-22 had. We had a, um, you know, over-tightened pressure vest on. We went out and we did three weeks of uh, centrifuge time, uh, which was one of the highlights of, of uh, poor life quality of, of my life. <laughs> so it's really something uh, to sit in the centrifuge for, um, for repeated high G runs. And then we went out and did it in F-16s, which is a very high performance airplane as well. And um, what we found was that work of breathing is definitely a thing, but the effects it has on your body are even more interesting because we, we noticed that all of the pilots were, were compensating for that high workload in their lungs by taking short, fast, shallow breaths. And this is where this gets interesting. You can kind of imagine this. If you were pulling against a major restriction, um, whether that be through a hose or if you tied a rubber band around your chest, if you take big, deep breaths against that rubber band, it's going to hurt, right? It's good. That's going to be hard because you're stretching the rubber band further. It's putting more resistance on you. But if you just take short, fast, shallow breaths, you're not really going to hit that resistance as much. Now, nobody thinks about this consciously. This is no pilot could have even told you this was happening. But we saw it in the data because we had we had data regulators all over us. And so we saw that every pilot was taking short, fast, shallow breaths to compensate for that restriction. And that looks a lot like hyperventilation. And when you hyperventilate, oxygen doesn't become the problem anymore. Carbon dioxide does. Because just like kids that used to pass out, right, by like hyperventilating as fast as they can in high school and then you know, passing out in class, it, that's a thing because you off-gas too much carbon dioxide and your brain then knocks you out and goes, I'm done with you. You know, you're messing up your blood pH right now. And this is where it kind of blew open the entire concept of, um, of Air Force, I guess, safety in flight when it comes to how to solve breathing problems, because all of our training, every single thing that we learned fell into two categories. Either I didn't have enough oxygen, so I solved that by hitting myself with a high dose of oxygen, or I had just had a rapid decompression and I was in basically, you know, a, this is the same situation that divers are in when they come up to surface too fast. And, and the problem was blood bubbles and, you know, 
So none of those were the problem here, right? You're hyperventilating, you're getting rid of carbon dioxide. If I follow the Air Force training procedures and I hit full oxygen, that does exactly nothing to solve a carbon dioxide problem. So now you've you've put yourself in this psychological state. I want, I want you to imagine this. You've you feel terrible. You feel like you're hypoxic. It matches all the symptoms you've been told to look for that tell you, hey, you're about to pass out because you're hypoxic. And so now you do what the checklist says. You throw your regulators to full blast. You get 100% O2. You feel it hit you in the face and nothing happens. You don't get better. And so now you're going to panic. You feel even worse because you think you, you've done everything. You've exhausted your checklist. You have nothing left to solve this problem. And so now you're going to hyperventilate even more which is going to off-gas more carbon dioxide, which is going to make things feel even worse. And um, the ultimate state of that, is, it's um, you know, hypocapnia, where you've, you've now, your blood pH has now changed. And it takes 10 to 15 minutes to recover once you've solved the problem. So I know this seems like a doomsday scenario, right? And it, it very much was for a lot of pilots. It, it, um, when we started taking this from the F-22 out to other communities, we found out that all of them, were having these problems and just didn't know how to define it or talk about it. There was actually, a, a, unfortunately, there was an F-15C fatal crash. There was another F-15 situation where they barely made it back in a completely incapacitated state after having a uh, work of breathing hypocapnia issue. Um, the F-35 does very similar things to you via different mechanism. It has an overpressure in the mask. It's actually, again, it was built to help you. It's not, no one was trying to hurt us here. It just, they thought more was better when it came to O2 and flow. And so it actually puts you in a situation where you're having to push against this constant overpressure at all times. The F-18, especially the Super Hornet version on the Navy side is probably, well, by far has the highest number of incidents where pilots are coming back in a, in a really bad state. Um, so this, this crosses branches. This is not just an air force thing. And the good news is through just education, you can take pilots so far because once you understand that hypocapnia is a thing and that you got there with hyperventilation, most likely, right? Most likely you got there with hyperventilation and that it doesn't cure quickly. The good news is you just, the, the way I briefed this to everybody, I, I went on a round robin throughout the entire force, like talking to every pilot training base about this. And my conclusion after all of it, after seeing this across nine different communities of jet type, including the A-10, by the way, they had, they had hypoxia issues on the ground, which is completely impossible. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there's no lack of oxygen on the ground. So what I told everybody was, hey, look, just go to Colorado. Right. We can all live at 6,000 feet, you know, in open fresh air. Right. We don't need hoses and, and regulators and all that stuff attached to us to live in Colorado. So just go to Colorado, um, take your mask off, chill out, like put the autopilot on and just and just let your body like get back to OK. And once people had the confidence to understand, OK, this is a CO2 problem, that's not going to fix itself by you know overdosing with O2. And just the confidence to understand that if your cabin, you know, if your cockpit is at 6,000, 8,000 even feet, which it is through most of the flight envelope, then you, you can, you can take the high performance gear off and just let your body be a human again and, and be that first generation human being that's just trying to adapt to an, an environment that's not completely hostile and then come back and land when you're not at the max 
state of incapacitation, <laughs> which is what a lot of people are doing, right? Because can you imagine like you've exhausted your checklist and you're like, well, according to the rate that this is degrading, I'm dying in 10 seconds. So I better point this airplane at a runway and, and go as fast as I can go to mm -hmm. try to get my wheels on the ground before I die. Where it's not true. It's just that that's exactly how it would feel. <laughs> but uh, uh, but you can just chill out in the air and, and start to recover. So huge discoveries from this, like huge discoveries on the education side. On the system side, yeah, exactly. None of that is <laughs> going to be fixed quickly with a technical fix, right? Like the smoking gun, different in every jet. The causes are different in every jet. You, you can think of it, we now think of it as a disappearing margin around the human brain right like you start with all your faculties when you take off and things eat away at that margin maybe it's overpressure in your mask maybe it's overpressure on your chest maybe it is your breath rate maybe it's your level of panic that day the point is however you got there you got there and recovery means stop being a fighter pilot for a second and start being a human being and, and know that your body just needs to readapt to one G. Well, for what it's worth, as a guy who recently moved to Colorado, I think the uh, the just go to Colorado solution tends to work for most things. So that's <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. It's a horrible horrible place to live. <laughs> um, this is an ongoing debate on this podcast about the pros and cons yeah. of Colorado. It's but the place I, to be. I do. This is this might be a stretch, but I'm curious if there's a place in all of that for like diaphragmatic training quote unquote but I'm, I'm thinking of episodes we've done in the past talking about energy system development and the role that oxygen actually plays in that versus traditionally how we think that it works and there's sort of a niche corner of of the human performance space that is looking at actually training the diaphragm as a muscle and what implications that has on the human's ability to intake more oxygen utilize more oxygen and i'm just curious if that does that solve in any way for any of this or is it just so far off the mark that it does in fact because if we just solve the air force's problems i mean we're happy to help facilitate I, yeah yeah well <laughs> so already already just on this very brief discussion with you two i've heard you say things about breathing that are interesting and different than what the Air Force is looking at. And, you know, integrating with the Navy, by the way, all of this research at this point is, is going through this, this conference that happens every six months called COPE Fighter, characterizing and optimizing the physiological environment of fighters. Um, it is a very informal gathering of everyone from doctors to PhDs to engineers that make the stuff to the pilots that fly it and I don't really still to this day know how we pulled this off and made an informal conference that happens, but it, we did. And it was very obvious to me to invite the Navy pilots and the Marine pilots and the Air Force pilots. And now I deeply regret not inviting you guys and the high performance <laughs> folks from the Army. Because I give you one example that when we first, what I'll call uncovered the hypocapnia, and we thought, wow, there's this phenomenon that no one has ever heard of, you know, in the whole world. And we're the first ones we've discovered, we've discovered hypothermia. <laughs> but it turns out 
it's a very well known thing, known thing in, in other walks of life. One of the examples that came up were special forces folks mm-hmm. um, who will actually intentionally hyperventilate to off gas CO2 to get that desire to breathe out of their brain so they can swim underwater for extremely long periods of time um, because CO2 drives your desire to breathe. Right. And so to them, they were like, yeah, have a cabinet. We, we do that on purpose. I was like, well, it kills us. So that's good that we're, we're sharing, <laughs> right? Like we're, <laughs> we're sharing information. I tell you that because whatever exercises you've got that you're thinking about, the answer is probably yes. One of the things we discovered with G-suits that's less understood, but it's called atelactasis. Have you guys ever heard of that? No. It's only because your email before this podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. Adal- all right. <laughs> All right, atelectasis is effectively when part of your lungs stop functioning. They're not dead or anything. It's just that you've you've either not used it or you've crushed it to the point that G-forces do this to us, for example, where the G will push down on your blood in your lungs to where it engorges some of the alveoli in the bottom part, right? Where you imagine that blood like pooling in the lower ones from that high G now you have this mismatch between um, the amount of blood that's down there and the amount of oxygen it's able to take in. The alveoli will then close and stick shut. And then your, your body, your, your body shunts them off. It's like, okay, those aren't doing anything for me. So I'm just going to cut that pipe. It'll shunt them off and just use the ones that are functional. You have no awareness of this other than, um, again, your breath rate tends to shallow out reference other chain of events we just talked about, but uh, you know, I'm going to stick to this atelaxis thing for a while because it would lead to what we used to call the raptor cough, where you would have this like shallow cough that was constant for like 24 hours sometimes after landing. And it was unexplained, but this raptor cough, you know, raptor pilots will tell you all about it. Um, it wasn't a violent cough. It wasn't a sick cough. It was this shallow cough that they would have for just like a, a long period of time. The cure for it is a like a like a max breath, right? Like you're it's a spirometry breath. So you basically inhale as high and deep as you possibly can, and then you exhale as fast and long as you possibly can. It will blow every single bit of air out of your lungs that you possibly can at the highest rate possible, right? So this forced breath this all the way in, fill everything up all the way out as fast and hard as you can. That is like a reset to your lungs. And we know it works. So if you do this, by the way, no pilot does this in flight because they don't know that they should. And it's the last thing you would ever think to do. But it turns out if you do this forced vital capacity breath all the way in, all the way out, you'll actually pop all that stuff back open and regain full lung capacity. So The question I would have for researchers in relation to your breathing techniques that you guys are exploring on the army side is could that, could they prevent atelaxis from starting to form in the first place? Is there a periodic breathing maneuver you could do, for example, to pop everything back out and basically keep it from degrading to the point where things are starting to shut down? Man, I knew we were going to talk breathing on this episode, but I did not expect to be talking about spirometers and inspiratory muscle trainers and stuff like that. I just point I, out atelaxis sounds like one of Gwyneth Paltrow's kids. 
That's Roger yep. too. When he asked if yep. I heard of it, I was like, that sounds like some celebrity child. Anyway, keep going. Now I, I want to sneak in a question here, um, staying on the breathing thing, but it, it ties back to what you mentioned about divers training to hold their breath for long periods. And I'm, I'm pulling this from some of the notes you sent us ahead of time, but the phenomenon where if you test F-35 pilots pre-flight or like not around a particular flight, you're getting four plus minute breath holds out of these guys. But then if you test them post-flight, they're struggling to hold their breath for even 10 seconds. Is that an atelectasis phenomenon or is that something else? So it's, here's, here's what we found. It was, it, it's it, a little bit different than that situation. Let me just describe it just to make sure we're all on the same page. So when F-35 pilots would come back from sorties, um, especially when the jet was new and people had switched from other airplanes, F-16, F-15, um, that they were familiar with almost without fail. You would come back for an F-35 sortie, talk to your friends and say, man, I just feel tired. Don't know why. Um, maybe it's the workload, but it's not. The jet's actually very easy to fly. But they just feel tired. And the ones that would feel tired to the point that they would kind of fess up and say, man, like, I'm not the same. Like, I feel bad. I felt bad flying. I don't feel good right now. Something's different about me. Here's what was fascinating. Some of them, some of them, could hold their breath for like minutes, like three plus minutes after this is after the flight. And that's like, that's not normal. <laughs> you know, if, if any of us tried to do that right now, I don't think we'd get very close. So it was like easy for them to hold their breath for minutes. This was an effect of a sortie where they felt bad that they could hold their breath that long. Um, some of them would also feel bad from the flight but could only hold their breath for like seconds. And sometimes they would actually initially be able to hold their breath for a very long time. And then as the day went on and they got more towards like where you would expect them to recover, right? Like towards nighttime, sleep time, that's when their breathing got shorter to where they could only hold their breath for a few seconds without getting that burn in their lungs, that like CO2 burn, like I got to exhale right now. So these are really weird situations and we can start to hypothesize on what may be going on. The ones that can hold their breath for a very long time after the sortie, you know, if they felt bad during the sortie, that was most likely hypocapnia, exactly what we were talking about. They were probably hyperventilating against that overpressure to the point that they had gotten rid of all their CO2. They felt bad, got the jet back home and then had this superhuman breath holding capability because they had off gassed all their carbon dioxide. Um, the ones that would land and have shortness of breath, much less common, but it does kind of make sense that it's possible because if you were to, every human's different. If you were to be the kind of person that accepts that overpressure and maybe just allows it to breathe for you and it actually ends up deepening your breaths and lengthening your breaths, you could end up actually storing too much CO2 that way. You know, much to our point, what you guys brought up very early in the podcast are fighters getting ahead of the human being inside of them. Um, this is very possible, right? Like we are meant to compensate for taking one step at a time up a mountain, not for rapid transits through oxygen oscillations and carbon dioxide environment changes at a rapid scale. So I, I, we don't know. We don't need to answer that one yet, Alex. We don't know. Again, staying on the breathing thing and specific to the sort of the diaphragmatic 
training we were talking about, I, the reason that came into my mind is because with pararescue years back, one of the things that I started to look at was, and, and for folks that have listened to episodes, this will be based on what Evan Pycon was talking to us about, but looking at it less from a increase your bench press, increase your deadlift, you know, whatever to attack your physiological limiter because one of the struggles i think that we have in human performance for ground-based forces is at the end of the day how do you quantify the quote-unquote sport of combat like in football it's easy rugby it makes sense basketball great but what are you really training for given the fact that combat like you can't really define it and so the thesis was basically okay if we can go at, at physiology instead of arbitrary performance metrics maybe there's something there maybe if we figure out physiologically where someone is limited, we can attack their physiology and just make a more robust human such that whenever the situation, you know, shit hits the fan, they are more prepared for whatever that might be. And the, the, the diaphragmatic training was one of those things because oxygen drives so many of those, so much of the physiology. So what was limiting each individual soldier, airman, whatever, when it came to the oxygen equation, was it the intake? Was it the, you know, delivery? Was it the respiration? And so when you're sitting here talking about the same types of struggles in a super badass aircraft, it's like, man, I wonder if there's a corollary there. And I wonder if there's a place for that type of training so that you could get around some of that. And and honestly, I think that it might end up where you already were talking about things ending up with the the big, you know, singular deep breath just kind of activating that whole system a little bit more. I'm just, again, no question there. I'm just curious now that you started talking about it and I'm thinking about, man, I wonder if that would be a super easy way of getting the ball rolling and like the return on investment would be huge. Oh yeah. And, and you're not just training, of course, as an air force guy, I got to go down the technical road here. <laughs> um, sensors. Mm -hmm. you know, we know if we know because we, we did testing on this stuff. So these sensors exist. They're not scalable right now, um, but they're starting to become so. So as this research has started to get out, I'm seeing companies start to come forward with sensors on the human body. They come in all kinds of sizes and shapes too, by the way, Anything from shirts to headbands to mm -hmm. watches to, you know, the ones that I think would probably provide the most information for a pilot are the ones that are in the mask that at a minimum would tell me my breath rate, but wouldn't that be so simple to just at least have the hyperventilation warning, right? Like, Hey man, your breath rate is in the red. I don't know why, but your breath rate is in the red. You're breathing too fast. That alone would be huge as a, as kind of a detection of, of the impending doom you're about to put on yourself. And when I, you know, I look at on the ground side, we wear enough gear think in everything we do in combat that if these things get small enough they could just be part of our warning system so i i know it's something the air force is interested in right now the warning systems are all aircraft centric so if my oxygen system goes down mm -hmm. i know that you know think about everything i told you last 30 minutes almost nothing that is taking these pilots down has to do with a system failure on the aircraft. Yes, that can be one entry point, right? If I unless suddenly my oxygen regulator is, is at a lower flow rate than you'd expect or producing less oxygen, of course, of course, that can become a problem. But 
the problems are happening anyway. We have absolutely zero detection on the human right now. Hmm. Zero indication of how you're doing besides your feelings, which can be quite unreliable when you're at nine G's and 600 miles an hour. So I'm, I'm watching the clock and I'm starting to get worried that we're going to miss out on all the, the Thunderbirds pushing the limits of humans in flight stuff, but I don't want to completely let this like breathing physiology, technical capability stuff go. Cause there's a gold mine of useful discussion here, I think, but I do want to draw out a story because you mentioned it in the stuff you sent us and it, it has fascinated me since I've gotten into this career field, how political the human performance stuff can get. And I see it only getting more political when you introduce multi-million dollar aircraft into the conversation. But you alluded to a, a pretty public Congress versus Air Force general officer situation that happened in 2018 when you guys started sharing these issues. Can you just walk us through how that went down? Yeah, it's it was a tough one. It was a, if... so. Okay, so the F twenty two thing happened twenty twelve. The research happened twenty fourteen. We had gone down the road of educating fighter pilots. Fighter pilots were starting to understand the situation they were in. Things were going okay. In twenty seventeen, the trainers started having issues, or at least talking about issues. And so now you're talking about your T6, your T45, and your T38. So our primary trainers for the Air Force, and specifically in the Air Force, the T6s, you know, at this point, this aircraft was getting older. It was starting to have occasional breakdowns in the oxygen systems, but the rate of physiological incidents was going up. So much so that they shut down training at some of the bases, started hitting the news. Things got really exciting. And that's when uh, I got called in to, um, to go and... And, and brief initially with our senior leaders, once our senior leaders heard the brief that I sent you guys that was, hey, look, you're not alone. We've been dealing with this with a whole bunch of different platforms at this point. And while they're all different, there's a lot of similarities we can get out of just the education side alone. So therefore, senior leaders, I thought, did an awesome job of, I mean, really within days, getting me on a plane to go to each pilot training base and start to tear down some of these myths and educate folks on um on what these breathing issues can look like and how to get out of these situations. It was well-received and the Air Force was pretty happy about it. The problem, the challenge was, you know, it's as you go up chain, as you try to take, you know, you guys have seen the slides that I gave you, that brief takes me well-researched, well-practiced. It takes me a solid 45 minutes to go through at what I'll call the fifth grader level, right? To, to the point where I'm just getting the concepts out and the flow through the concepts to a point where you can go, okay, I get it. That's why I have to go to Colorado. Now that's proficient briefer, understands the background, just getting, getting the main points. So brief that to a one-star who then briefs that to a two-star who briefs that to a three-star, for example. Now that three-star goes up against Congress and it was not just hard, it was impossible for him to back up the claim that he was making that we can solve a lot of this with education right now um, and, and get things back on track while we work in parallel the fixes. Congress didn't want to hear it. They, they just basically said, you know, you're telling me that you're going to sit here and say pilots need to breathe better. And that's your solution to, to the problems that we're dealing with, with, you know, pilot training bases shutting down, et cetera. And so it, it ended badly. Um, and yet, when you're talking about acquiring the systems necessary or the fixes for individual aircraft to make this impossible, it'll be 20 years, like it, it can't be done. Um, you know, honestly, we should focus on the next generation airplanes <laughs> when it comes to 
fixing the breathing systems because at any given time, you've got somewhere between six and 10 flying platforms that all have different systems. So we learned so much from it. And I hated that it um, ended, if you will, as a, as a negative brief to Congress, because the truth is we uncovered so much through that process um, and educated so many people that there are breakthroughs happening now, you know, not just in the education and the human performance side, but also on the way forward. So our specifications for fighter breathing systems have changed completely. They've been codified. When we design next generation fighters or upgrade systems, they are going to have these elements as part of them. Things we didn't used to think about like flow rate and, um, you know, not just the concentration of oxygen, but the fluctuations within that concentration now have specified tolerances to keep us from continually having to adapt to an environment that's changing. So it was a positive thing, but so goes it. And, you know, when you talk about politics, I find that politics plus science equals politics. <laughs> that's a beautiful, it's the best, it's the beautiful best way to encapsulate that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know, the harder something is to understand, the more you're just going to apply what you wanted to hear all along anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you're not able to make the leap, right? So it's very easy to just say, well, I feel like it's this. So here we go. So that's heavy. I love that. You mentioned the 7-Eleven human performance wing, and we've we've talked about human performance here. And I'm I'm curious with the rise of of embedded human performance staffs and and kind of similar to what you guys are seeing with everything that we've talked about from a breathing standpoint, are there conversations right now or, or what does it look like for exercise science type professionals to come into that space and train pilots? Is there a way to train pilots for some of these issues or is it more just, you know, creating more physically robust human beings? It's absolutely training. Absolutely. And, and the air force has, it already has some well-established training, physiological training routines but like I mentioned, prior to this kind of breakout research, all of it was focused on oxygen. It was all about oxygen. It was, okay, if you feel bad, you have no oxygen, get more oxygen. Here's how you get more oxygen. <laughs> so everything was based on that. And they were they were great hands-on training devices that we still use them. You know, we have, we have devices where um, you're flying along in a simulator and it starts to pull O2 away from your mask and eventually you feel terrible and you can't see color anymore. And then you hit your regulator and the lights come back on. Everything's good we've been fighting pretty hard to get those updated to account for some of these other phenomena, uh, like worker breathing, hypocapnia, atelectasis, et cetera. It's just, it's hard to do. It's hard to imitate some of that stuff. And really you get into the sensitive side of, do I really want to put a person through that on purpose? Cause some of these things can feel pretty bad mm -hmm. and take a pretty long time to recover from. So it's always going to be a debate on how far you take it. Uh, I just I think it's kind of funny by the way, because we, we willingly put ourselves and our brand new students through the centrifuge, which is, I, I can't tell you how terrible that experience is. It's, it's really something. <laughs> so, um, so we justify it for some things, but uh, yeah, for, I think when it comes to recurring training, uh, we're unwilling to go too far down the road of, you know, of really getting somebody in a breakdown. Mm -hmm. So that weighs into it for sure. But to answer your question, I, I, I don't think we're going to build more robust human beings. Um, Okay, maybe we can. That would be awesome. But I think um, 
training is going to be huge and education is going to be huge. Just knowing what the threats are is enough to beat them most of the time with mm. these phenomena. Mm. Um, so just by training your mind to understand what, what's, what's hitting you up there, it's going to get you 95% of the problem. So I'm, I'm watching the clock and I think we've been talking for, for almost an hour recorded here and we haven't even hit the whole second topic you had for us before we leave behind the breathing and fitness stuff and dive into like team psychology and Thunderbird stuff and some cognitive performance things there. There was a question Drew was, was mentioning before you hopped on here that I do want to close out because it ties to so much of what you said. We've yeah. talked about a whole bunch of unique breathing stuff, a whole bunch of unique performance stuff. I'm sure there are tons of medical evaluations. Pilots have to go through various training exposures and things like that, but like true or false, the actual fitness standard that they are still held to at the end of the day is push-ups, sit-ups in a mile and a half run. You got it. <laughs> 100% accurate. While you hold your breath. While you hold your breath. You, yeah. You can't breathe for the whole mile and a half. Um, <laughs> Uh, yep. That's so that's true. So the officer fitness test is the same. There is a uh, one time in pilot training, you will do this other heavyweight lifting test. That's supposed to be a, um, indicator of your G tolerance. And it's, it's all about those lower body muscles. Um, like, you know, your like the, the muscles that you clench to keep the blood in your brain. Are we talking are isometric mid thigh pull here? Is that what we're talking that's about? That's basically, yes. It's like, okay. It's a, it's, I would call it a, a weightlifting squats test, the best summarized been 20 years since I've been through it, but it was, <laughs> and that's, by the way, that's one of the main takeaways is whether this test is valid or not. It sure isn't for 41 year old me when I took it in my early, early twenties. So, um, I think it's an indicator early on and I'm not even sure what's done with that information because then you go to the centrifuge, which is where you actually figure out if you can handle nine G's or not. And then if you pass, then you go on to be a pilot. So from that moment forward, it is sit-ups, push-ups, and a mile and a half run. Sweet. All right. Transitioning here, hard break. You, you sent us a bunch of fascinating stuff about like pushing the boundaries of human performance. Who's better, Thunderbirds or Blue Angels? And you want to go right there? Yeah, who's better? Who wins in a dog right fight? Go I right had such an appropriate question. Alex was being all, I'm just like, who who wins? You know, yeah, um, really good question because <laughs> if you'd asked me this five years ago, three years ago, no. Yeah, between those two. For, for the audience, angels. we're talking to a former Blue commander angels. of the Thunderbirds. Yeah. Yep, yep. I, I am 100% ready to admit that both teams go through cultural waves, right? Both teams go through highs and lows. These teams are 70 to 75 years old and they've been around a long time. The teams, not and the pilots, it, just to be clear. That, yeah, right. That's right. That's okay. right. The pilots, two years, two years. You're, you're in, you're out in two years. But these teams are 70, 75 years old uh, and they've gone through tons of waves of performance. And when when you go back to 2018, 2019, 2020, 100% the Blue Angels were better than us. They had maintained their standard at a really high level. We actually went and talked to the Blue Angels, uh, started integrated training with the Blue Angels to try to pick up the Thunderbirds' capabilities. And then we took that and I believe took it to the next level, which um, 
you know, we intend to share everything that we've learned from taking a lot of the Blue Angels tactics and moving them into Thunderbirds tactics, which inevitably creates a leap where now you're going to push things to the next level. And uh, we continue to train with those guys every March. So we'll, we'll actually go to El Centro and spend a week with them and share lessons learned to hopefully create a situation where nobody's ever able to get that far behind again, um, where both teams are performing at extremely high levels at all times because America wins when that's the case. The bottom line is that I need people in the Navy. I need people in the Air Force. We need people in the Army. We fight no fight alone. Um, and both teams at the end of the day represent the country. So uh, I know that's a political answer, but <laughs> factually, I really think both teams are extremely good right now. This is probably a high point in history for both teams, like like right now. Nice. That's cool to hear. Um, looking, looking through some of the notes you sent, there was something that that resonated with me in my own experience. Not that I've ever flown any kind of aircraft. Actually, technically, when I was twelve, I got to like hold the stick when my uncle was flying or something. But I don't think that counts. But uh, sure but you does. do live in Colorado, so you I do. That so that, for it. that's probably making me better <laughs> at it. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the you mentioned in some of the notes that the Thunderbirds experience accidents more often when you're flying fast, loose, comfortable, like not stuff you're normally thinking of as the most dangerous things the Thunderbirds do. And, and my corollary experience with that, I tore my ACL skiing and I was really frustrated because I tore it on a run that I'd done plenty of times, wasn't worried about, shouldn't have been scary at all. And I, I end up sitting there with ski patrol where they're telling me my season's over and stuff like that. And the, the head of ski, ski patrol, ski patrol tells you that when they're helping you out, you're like, oh, well, dude, I had, you're done, man. I didn't know anything about <laughs> ACLs at the time. And I told them my symptoms and they're like, well, we know what that is. And you're probably not going to see you're screwed. Months. We're going to yeah. leave you up here. Um, but the, the head of ski patrol was talking about how that's actually for sure the case in their experience, right? People end up getting hurt on blues where they're relaxed and not worried about it because you're just inherently not as vigilant because that like fear element isn't there forcing you to think about everything you're doing. Could you kind of speak briefly to how that applies in flight and how that influences the way you lead formations like that? Yeah, I had, uh, my, my boss when I was Thunderbird one, uh, was a one-star general who had previously been a Thunderbird five back in his time. And I, I will never forget this. He, he, we went to dinner, the, uh, he was brand new in command. You know, I had already been on the Thunderbirds for about, uh, six months at the time. I, you know, I thought I knew it all of course. And <laughs> he sat down with me for dinner and he, he looked straight in the eyes and he goes, Astro. I know you can't believe this right now, but someday you're going to be upside down at hundred feet going 600 miles an hour. And you're going to be thinking about your grocery list. <laughs> and um, then that's when things get dangerous. And I, I thought about that and I was like, it does sound impossible because the Thunderbird one job was by far the most difficult thing I've ever done from a flying perspective, from a leadership perspective. I never would have thought that, by the way. If you'd asked me that for the previous 17 years of flying jets, um, I just didn't realize how difficult it was. But he was 100% right. And when you look at Thunderbird accident history, it is never that they crashed when they were max performing the diamond pass and review, really trying to shack that 18-inch formation and, and get wingtips right up against each other. It is when people are loose and not locked on and, and more importantly when you look you know i talked about those cultural waves in history right when the team is performing well you can see it we watch all the old tapes as anything we can get our hands on um 
we we go through when we're learning how to be a part of this team because the trade craft's that important. And when you look at the high accident rate eras, the demonstration was also poor. You know, they were loose, they were wide. The you know, the, the, it wasn't a team that got tight uh, and into that max trust situation. And it is it is significantly correlated. So when you see high performance eras, you don't see accidents. And I, you know, knock on wood, I can speak for the last, really last five years, my predecessor and I, um, no accidents. And we were flying, we were flying the closest that the team has ever been flown. So the harder we push, and, and this is where it gets difficult, you know, to get back to um, General Goodman's point about someday it's going to get easy enough that you start thinking about other things and that's when it gets dangerous. It was difficult for two years to push these pilots when they were already very good. You know, we had gotten probably six, seven months into it. We had gotten to the point where we're like, I think we're breaking records right now. Like we look good. We are, we're flying the show. Well, it's on time. It's on center. It's low. It's tight. It's fast. But to push them further than that and to continue to push as soon as they would get comfortable in a situation to be able to go, all right, let's tighten it up. Let's fly it closer. Let's fly it lower. That was challenging. And it's very hard to articulate the why behind that. All you have is the correlations of history, but it's very hard to understand why other than that general's comment, which made a lot of sense to me once he said it. I'm curious. And, and I don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole necessarily of sort of the world of demonstration flying, but what you're talking about in terms of high performance and the goal being super tight, super low, all of these things to the person on the ground watching there's the difference in 18 inches versus 24 inches and what that means in terms of time training, cognitive load, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, I don't want this to come across as like blunt, but the risk versus like the reward in terms of the end goal being the enjoyment of the show or is the risk there because the tactical takeaways for potential future combat situations is is worthwhile, if that makes sense? Oh, uh, that's really it's it's a it's a common, common question, right? Like if you're watching a Thunderbird show and you are not a like fighter pilot or someone who's seen a lot of air shows, you have no idea if we're flying seven inches apart or fifty-five inches apart. Mm-hmm. You would, as an audience member, you know, you can't tell. It's a really, really salient point that comes up all the time. And, but here's what, here's what I've noticed. It is very difficult to define good versus extraordinary. But when you see it, you know. I think this applies across human performance, whether we're talking about Olympians here or extraordinary musicians, performers, whatever the case may be. Um, when we are flying early season shows, loose, you know, bobbles in formation, it's not like anyone's going, oh man, number three was like four inches out on the right side right there. But when we fly poorly versus when we fly really well, people can feel it. How they feel it, how their brains are defining it, I couldn't tell you, but they can feel it. We can tell in the autograph line. We can tell in the reactions we get after the show. Um, we can tell on our social media reactions. It, it Somehow we are able to recognize peak human performance, even in fields that we're unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but how we define it, I'm not sure. Now, as far as the tactical side goes, 
I think you, I think you hit on something that's, that's key. It is just the, this is my opinion, right? But it is to me, the, the American thing to do is to push <laughs> to the absolute limit and beyond because you can, and because it's why we're here on this earth. Right. I, I really believe that. I think Just waiting for an I, Eagle. I'm waiting for an Eagle to fly and land on your shoulder. <laughs> right? I, think, you know, I mean, if you think about like the nation's identity, that's pretty much what it is. It's like, well, let's put a man on the moon because right. Like we zero economic or tactical benefit, but we're doing it because that's the next thing that humans need to do. And, you know, we, we, we push those boundaries in all the directions, whatever it may be with arts, science, um, performance elite olympics right it's just what we do and and so i think it's important if, if we're going to be america's team right we're not air force colors we're red white and blue fighter jets you know that we're america's team and i think we have to represent that i think we have to push the boundaries at all times or we're not doing our job but there's another concept i want to just to kind of add to what you two are asking why push why take the risk why push further and harder I have noticed with human performance, you are either playing offense or you are getting worse. I, I have almost never seen stable. I find that people do well when they think they are progressing, when they are pushing, when they are going, I am trying to get better. I am trying to get better. I am trying to improve, especially if you can see that incremental improvement. People do very well in those situations. As soon as people turn around and start playing defense, that is when I see people rapidly fall off um, from a performance perspective. I think it applies to everything from economics to flying airplanes. Um, when you are aggressively pushing forward, things tend to go well. When you turn around and start playing defense and, and you start getting into entitlement and um, you know, I deserve this position. No one better pass me. And I'm going to try to hold this position. And you get into this point where you're kicking other people off the ladder instead of climbing the ladder. That's when I have found that teams fall apart, people fall apart. And so, um, that was kind of my defense against that. If, if that makes any sense is to just continue pushing. Now, when I see air shows, I'm going to know that the reason they're flying so close is because it's the American thing to do. It makes me wonder how the perhaps some of our international allies in their air demonstration teams justify what they do, because certainly it's not the British are doing it because it's the American thing to do. Um, but one of the things you mentioned, the, the kind of blind trust component of this, and I would imagine flying at that speed at that proximity, obviously there's a ton of that at play. So from just a, a very practical standpoint, what kind of, exercises techniques like team building type things do you guys do to to train for that or can you replicate that on the ground versus just hey we we just have to fly like this in order to kind of build up that cohesiveness the um the only job i've had in the air force where there is no substitute for just doing it we try to warn the people applying for the team we had about a 14 to one pilot applicant ratio for this last board uh, to make it onto the team. So it is a lot of applicants for very few slots. So we were able to be brutally honest. And one of the things um, my slot pilot at the time would ask in the interviews is he would say, Hey, look, do you have the discipline to stare at something for 45 straight minutes? 
Do you have the discipline to like stare at one thing for 45 minutes? And if you take your eye off of it, then you die. So like that was his best attempt to <laughs> cage the stakes of a wingman uh, on the ground um, on the Thunderbirds, Blue Angels, exactly the same thing. You know, their viewpoint to get to this blind trust concept, their viewpoint in the sky is a about a probably three to four foot overlap underneath my wing. So their helmet is about 18 inches off of the bottom of one wing where their view is just rivets and a flap that's moving in like right above their head. They can kind of take in the side of the aircraft sitting right next to them. They're so close that I can see their red noses by my cockpit, like moving around here. So they, their viewpoint from the wingman perspective is a giant flap and a giant side of an aircraft. That's it. They have no perception of up, down, ground, sky, nothing. Um, and I'm taking them in six ship formation down to no kidding, 150 to 200 feet off the ground um, at 500 to 600 miles an hour. So no big deal, no big deal right? It's the, <laughs> the, tr the trust aspect. It has to be absolute. And it's not just like, okay, yep. I'm going to just stare at my rivet and not move. And this guy will take care of it. It's, it's so much more than that. The forces that we feel off of each other, interplay so i can feel every movement they make and, and i'm not just flying straight and level right i'm in the middle of a loop for example and i can feel if i put you know thousands of a pound of pressure to the left on my stick accidentally i will feel number three loosen up on the right side as my wing moves away and number two get compressed against an airwave against my left wing and then i'll feel number two react to that airwave and move down and number three then react to the wing coming down on his side as they bounce each other back into position, basically. Now, they're not flying off of each other, right? They're just flying off of me, but their forces hit my wing and my wing moves. And then if you don't have that absolute trust, you're going to overreact to those things. And remember, you've got a slot pilot underneath as well. So you've got these, these four airplanes, sometimes six, uh, all within inches of each other. And the forces are pretty extreme. Um between those wings so you have to know that when you see lead make a movement that isn't the right movement that you you have to trust that it's going to be momentary and it's going to be quickly and smoothly corrected back to the correct position so that you don't overreact which will then cause more overreaction throughout the formation eventually just a fireball and we the only way that we we get there is by starting flying very far apart uh well very far apart being like three feet ish oh god but enough, <laughs> air, it, well, air enough controllers it, are having heart attacks right now about his definition <laughs> yeah. of very far apart we're really far apart guys <laughs> it's all yard it's enough it's enough that you have missed distance when you when you go through these things right so like when those rocks happen the wings don't hit hmm. so you'll see them and it scares you to death but they don't hit and eventually when we see those missed distances shrink then we'll shrink the the uh distance between airplanes as well you ever it's been all um, done in the air have you ever been inverted with a mig <laughs> been inverted in a mig oh wow <laughs> take that tom cruise <laughs> as, you're, as you're talking about it honestly weirdly it makes me think of a peloton in like a in a bicycle race 
where i mean obviously different yeah. situation but you know like you mentioned if one if one of you guys kind of goes awry you end up in in a you know explosion is that part of the reason why you mentioned that being thunderbird one was the hardest job you'd had is it because so much of what you do has so i guess a super heavy weight attached to it or or why do you think that it was the hardest job you'd ever had i'll start by just saying it's the the flying is just that hard which is not something typically a squadron commander in the air force so i had a previous squadron command i commanded the 59th test and evaluation squadron that was a big one you know it was 200 people we had six different platforms about 10 of each fighter type and um busy command job but i would fly about four times a month and flying for me was that was the thing i did to stay in touch whereas my main job was to command the squadron and drive the mission forward thunderbird one is absolutely named commander slash leader you are the commander of everything like the 31 different job types all your maintenance folks all of your public affairs folks everything from the show to the production to the logistics to get you there it's a big squadron and just to paint a picture of the logistics side um every thursday you fly the team out to a not air force base right like a like a city's airport Sometimes it's a very small runway in the middle of like New York's planes. And sometimes it's right next to JFK. We did, we flew a show on Jones beach, which was literally five miles off of JFK. So anything from major international airports to very small strips, but what they are not is air force bases that know how to handle fighter jets. So <laughs> every Thursday, every single Thursday, we pack everybody and every spare part engine, everything we've got into a C-17 fly it to these remote fields. Um, we had to have everything with us that we would need to get through any situation we could encounter out there. So it was basically like a deployment with the C-17 and all eight of our fighters refueling on the way there. We land, download everything. Usually you've gone to the East Coast, you've lost several hours. And by the next morning, Friday, you wake up, you fly in the morning and you fly it at, in the afternoon. And by the way, it's a completely new show site. So you've never seen that terrain before. You have to memorize a five mile ring around that base um to understand you know where your reference points is for 40 different maneuvers and then you fly the show saturday you fly the show sunday you pack it all back up on monday fly back to las vegas land on your home base tuesday is your only practice day so you fly twice on tuesday wednesday is our day off that's our weekend and you know reed also has solved any other problem that came up during the six days yeah. that you, you know, described <laughs> and then thursday you do it all over again you do that for nine straight months that's it. Like there aren't, there aren't weekends. Um, so no weekends for nine straight months. And then the, the off season, if you will, uh, what we call winter training, we swap out 50% of the team and we start over again. So from our last show in November to our first show in March, we fly twice a day, every day through the weekends. And that's the only way to get good enough to fly the demonstration. So the logistics side is very difficult to command. And then the flying side is so difficult just from a hands and feet perspective that it takes every bit of double turns every day for four straight months with no breaks to get there. And I, by the time I got to my first show, I was like, all right, like I put in the time and the training. I think I've got this thing doped out. Let's get after it. But nothing could really have prepared me for the pain of getting to one of these new airfields and 
having it figured out only to wake up to a 1500 foot overcast layer with high winds on the surface and realizing that I had to relearn the show with crosswinds and real weather phenomenon that you know, what's, what's unique about it is in most air force peacetime missions, you can always do it again tomorrow. Right. You can always say like, yeah, weather's terrible. I'm out. Like I'll, I'll come back and do this training mission tomorrow, but not the Thunderbirds. That is that city's air show for the next five years. You know, a lot of, a lot of towns will get an air show every five years and it's kind of a no fail mission. So you want to put up some kind of a demonstration. And sometimes that is uh, extremely risky mm. with what we see on the weather side of things. So it's just, it just never turns off for two straight years. You know, there's, there's always a problem to deal with, with either someone on the team or with just the show itself. And um, I, I think that's one of the, I don't know, it's a real privilege to have done it, but it was the hardest job I've ever done. I, I got to ask this, this quick follow on as a, um, I don't know what jet pilots call people like me groundlings. I don't know, but as a groundling, do you ever just look at an F-16 and be like, I don't want to fly in that today. Cause I look at an F-16 and think that's the coolest thing ever. I would do that all the time, but I would imagine doing that twice a day forever. You're just like, Oh man, just please no. <laughs> yes. So, um, <laughs> 100 it happens I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure metallica looks at a stage and goes that's fair yeah that's really fair. would like to not taylor swift is like I, I don't yeah, want right. to do show. <laughs> so so in, in hindsight of course i'm sure they're all like that was awesome i'm glad i did it but no there's um there's probably no worse feeling than waking up and looking out of your hotel window and seeing like clouds and storms and being like here it comes <laughs> I'm about to go fly in that and uh, I'm going to have six of my best friends glued to myself and it's going to be a really bad day. <laughs> yeah, I'll share this with you. I think this probably, this probably will surprise most people. I flew that demonstration by the end of it all about 630 times. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of flying. Um, each one of them is about an hour long flight. And I never fired up the engine in front of the crowd without being really nervous about it. So it never got to the point where I wasn't heart rate up, adrenaline up, nervous about what was about to happen. That surprised me. Hmm. I, but prior to the team, I had flown a lot of different airplanes, 30, 30 plus airplanes with the air force. And I would absolutely get to a point of comfort with everything else that, you know, I'd fire up the jet on a routine sortie and be like, okay, cool. I'm going flying. Certainly not nervous, you know, maybe um, prepared, but not nervous. But man, Thunderbirds, every time nervous. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we're we're coming to a close here. I had one final question I did want to ask because I found it interesting in the notes you sent us. Um, sure. This is this is getting after some of that nervousness stuff. This is getting after cognitive performance for sure. Um, the concept of boundary avoidance theory, yes. which, yes. as I understand it, is that humans perform better when aiming for a target rather than aiming to avoid a boundary. But can you explain what that is and the relevance of it to what you do? Yeah. Yeah. It's huge to me. I learned it in test pilot school and, you know, test pilot school. I seriously think that's where it came from. I think specifically it came from a guy named evil Bill Gray, who had really tried to codify this concept of 
what pilots call the pilot-induced oscillation. I don't know if that's a familiar term, but the PIO. So this is when you are trying to land or do something high precision in an aircraft and you end up in a situation where every control input is amplifying the oscillation that you've created. So the only way to get out of it is to let go of the stick and just let everything stop happening. It's, um, you know, some of, some of these pilot-induced oscillations are induced by flight control issues, but many times it's your brain and your brain is just reacting 180 degrees out of phase with what it's being presented in its feedback loop and it can't get control of it. Well, Evil had this breakthrough um, where he was able to prove to us um, through formation flying that you are prone to these out-of-phase feedback inputs, these, these PIOs, when you are trying to avoid boundaries. But you are much less prone to, to these PIOs when you are aiming at a target. So the best example is if I'm driving down a highway and I tell you, hey, aim at the yellow stripe and just drive down the yellow stripe. You're going to be able to do that very well. You're going to be able to do that with precision on order of inches, probably, and consistently. But if instead I put two concrete barriers, you know, three inches away from each side of your car, and I say, drive down this highway and don't hit these barriers on the side of the road, it's probably going to be about 15 seconds before you hit the barriers because you're going to see one closing on you you're going to turn to avoid it you're going to be too close to the other one and you know it's going to be a growing oscillation until you collide with the barrier so you can replicate this on the ground in fact we used to replicate it at test pilot school even on taxiing you know just driving an airplane at 15 miles an hour on the ground you could get into these huge oscillations side to side that would sometimes even send the thing into ground loops which are these like spins on the ground um it's amazing what your brain will do just based on how it feeds back on a target. You know, if I put something in the distance and aim at it, you'll drive right to it. It's easy. But instead, if I put barriers around you and say, don't hit the barriers, you're hitting them. So this, you know, I think, you know, like I mentioned in, in what I wrote up, the Thunderbirds had 70 years of experience that told them how to avoid boundaries, but they never said why. And I think it's just because this theory wasn't there for them to understand as soon as I got onto the team and saw what they were doing, what the previous team members were doing, it made perfect sense to me. So one of the examples I'll give you is Thunderbird pilots trim full forward. Here's what that means. We fly the entire demonstration with a 16 pound weight in our arm to maintain level flight. So I have to pull back on the stick with 16 pounds of force to maintain level flight because I've basically put the jet in a position where it's uh, it's trimmed to dive at negative one G. Um, no other type of flying uses that tech. That's insane. Like you would want the least workload possible for every other type of flying where you, you know, if you let go of the stick, it flies straight, right? But if I let go of a Thunderbird stick, it dives at negative one G into the ground. So we do that because now um, I am, if I want to fly in position, I'm having to fly to the target. I'm having to pull back on the stick with conscious, positive thought to put myself in that position I want to be in. Mm. And if I want out of that situation, I just let go and it leaves. Um, so instead of being trimmed neutral, where if I want to go up, I have to go up. And if I see an up boundary, I have to push forward now to get down away from that boundary with that, with that negative trim setting 
you are either pulling towards the target into position or you are not. But there's no pull, push, pull, push, pull, push. And therefore, we don't get those oscillations that would be catastrophic um, in that close formation flight. And what's really interesting is just is this year, my number two started putting a negative trim in roll. So he actually trimmed the F-16 to roll into me without a positive push away. So now he doesn't even have that lateral boundary to avoid either on, on his side of the formation, which is cool. It was brand new and it worked really well. How did that make you feel when he came up to you? He's like, Hey man, I added some uh, negative roll to that. So if I let go, I'm going to smash into you. Just, you know, have fun up there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, like, wait a second. It was, it was so cool to see him apply that pitch concept to roll and to see it work that I was just like, I love it. <laughs> Jeez. So, uh, yeah, it'll probably end up being the team's technique. I think, uh, for those of us that don't fly for the Thunderbirds, when you mentioned boundary avoidance, uh, I think of me as a hobbyist bowler. And when you put up gutter guards, you tend to hit them. And when they're you hit them. not there, you're bowling strikes. So I, I completely understand what you're talking about, uh, navigating high-speed aircraft inches apart. Okay, we've arrived at the point that we warned you about at the beginning, which is the final question uh, for all the pilots that we bring on. And I think you mentioned somewhere on the order of 30 plus planes that you've flown. So this is going to be a little bit different for you. Typically, we don't allow them to choose their plane, but it seems like all these planes are yours. So we'll take the F-16 yeah. out of this. You've okay. got to give us your top three aircraft and just some caveats. It can be any point in history um, and it can be, we, we've had to now open this up. It can be any nationality. The Spitfire had to be included for for one of our conversations, so we opened it up a little bit. But anything but the F-16, and it's not quite fair because you seem to have flown everything with wings. Gosh. Um, all right. Well, I always answer that um, same way. So I'm going to try that on you, Drew. And then if that doesn't work, then you, you, can, you can make me add a third one. If I'm going to war right now, like in combat tomorrow, F-35. It's it's a great fighter jet. It's uh, undersold, uh, really, in all in all fronts. If I'm just going out to have fun, F-15C. That was the last plane we built. That we didn't care about stealth. We didn't care about like <laughs> anything except max performance of engines and speed and wing area and just the Dodge awesome Charger things. of the sky. Exactly. So <laughs> that plane flies like something designed to be that. Uh, it's a blast to fly. Those are those are my top two. F-15C is my favorite to fly just for fun. F-35 is my favorite combat airplane that we've got in the inventory. Um, if you if you want to, oh, if you want to pick something outside of those two, yeah, um, I would I would just kill to fly the SR-71, the Blackbird. Nice. Yeah, nice. yeah. I, I just can't imagine what it would be like. That radio check story gets me every time. Oh, dude. Yeah. I love the radio check story. I got to ask, actually. So that was the last question. But before we go off of air, I, like I watched, I think I mentioned the email. I watched the right stuff the other day and obviously Chuck Yeager and all that. Just yeah, quick summary as a test pilot yourself. How far are we advanced from what I would perceive was how it went down in the 50s of like, yeah, just go up and give it a whirl and see what happens. Or are we not? So, no, so, so far advanced that people wonder if we've gone too far. Mm. And I don't think we have it. So uh, 
Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Drew. So um test pilots back in the 50s, that era, the right stuff era, they were they were losing 25% of their test pilots. Mm. So one in four wasn't making it. That's a lot of death um in experimentation. Test piloting is hard, but it is made much easier these days by modeling and simulation. Mm-hmm. And the the models that we are able to to build on the engineering side, whether it you know be a series of ground tests for these things we call hardware in the loop testing or software in the loop tests, we can get so close to an accurate model that when we first flight an aircraft like the B twenty one that just first flighted, um, it's usually going to go just fine. Now, from a safety perspective, I say that we you would be amazed by how many things we still find wrong when we do those flights, even, even in a fairly advanced um, system. So just to kind of give you an example of that, we've gotten so good at the modeling and simulation that the biggest argument we face as test pilots is that the contractor and sometimes even our leadership will come to us and say, hey, look, we've seen the models, it's good. We don't need to test this. Like, let's just get it to the field and, any experienced test pilot is going to push back right away and be like, "We, there are the unknown unknowns, right? There are the things that we didn't know to look for in the models that we're probably going to find. And I swear, every time I take a new system up, when someone told me we shouldn't test this, let's just press, I find some pretty debilitating things about the platform. Um, mm-hmm. I've even had, I've had systems, uh, you know, the F-15C is a 50 plus year old aircraft right now. We put one new piece of hardware in it. Uh, we were told everything was going to be great and it couldn't possibly go wrong. And it turned out it was measuring its angle of attack wrong by about 70%, and which is going to lead you towards flat spins. And then when you did get into a flat spin, the recovery controls were reversed. <laughs> so pretty catastrophic stuff for a system that we were told we didn't even need to look at. And that's not atypical. So we've advanced, but we've advanced so far that now people are telling us the models are perfect. They are not. Jeez. All right. Well, I I will not ask any more last question, last questions. We will close it here and we will say thank you for coming on all the way from Rome. This has been a fascinating conversation. Right back at you. This has been awesome to talk to you guys. I really, really do want to know more about what you're doing with breathing on the Army side because it's at least correlated and probably directly related to what we're doing oh for sure hey alex let's cover our ass real quick oh great idea drew all right guys the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent thanks for tuning into this week's episode before you go please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice you can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and we receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in depth and kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, 
our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.